I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, how can we reduce gun violence in America? So the situation that got me shot was, I was trying to, you know, provide for my family. This is when I really started selling drugs. Daquan Stanley grew up in the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn. Like many low-income black and brown neighborhoods in big cities across America, Crown Heights has struggled with higher rates of violent crime, often driven by gangs and drugs. That's what got Daquan Stanley shot the first time. He was 17. And some guys on the block felt like I was stepping on their toes, you know, interfering with their business. We used to all be friends, but I guess whoever they was working for put the pressure on them and made them do what they did. Uh So they jumped me. This is like my first time, like in close quarters with, with, with shooting. Before that, it was like shooting outside, maybe shooting from a distance, um, but never, you know, inches away from each other. Mm. I just heard like the door open. And then one of one of the assailants basically say, that's him, and push his friend to the side. And he started shooting, and then his friend started shooting. And I got shot twice in my arm. It broke, it broke my arm. So, you know, okay. I was out of commission for a minute. Did that make you think differently about carrying a gun? If, if anything, it provoked me to go further with carrying it because now I knew the effects of gun violence and I always wanted to protect myself. So it just egged me on to carry it even more. Every year in America, more than 30,000 people are injured by guns. Close to 45,000 die in gun violence. That's more people than you can fit in a typical major league ballpark like Wrigley Field or Angel Stadium. If you think of gun deaths in America that way, a little over half the stadium is people who die by gun suicide. The other half are homicides. Mass shooting deaths fill a few rows behind home plate. They're a small fraction of the overall number, but capture the most public attention. And with each new mass shooting, there is that same cycle of anger and horror, followed by a sense of hopelessness because they just keep happening. And changing that seems beyond the power of a divided Congress. This season, Top of Mind is finding fairness. We all want to live in safe communities free from gun violence. Is there really nothing we can do about that other than argue endlessly over gun control? Well, today we're going to explore some options by breaking the problem down into its three components, homicide, suicide, and mass shootings. First, homicide. The first time I owned a gun, I had to be around 13, 14 years old. I didn't use a gun until I was around 16. This is Daquan Stanley again. I've been involved in gang activity, gang life, since I was 12 years old. Uh, When I first got to Albany Projects, which is a project that is in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, it seemed like every time I walked out, It was people that wanted to fight me. And at that point, I didn't have anyone to defend me. I was young. My father was an alcoholic. He popped in and out of my life, going back and forth to prison. You know, I had brothers, but they were already incarcerated or was in a different part of Brooklyn. One of my older brothers at the time that I moved to Albany Projects was on a run for a homicide. So it was just me, my mom and my sister. I decided that I would no longer be bullied. I decided to fight. And he joined a gang. It offered me a family. It offered me a family plus protection. You know, when you're the outsider, everybody click up. I don't mind having a a fair fight, but when the odds is against you, it's no real wins. So you have to, you have to find yourself a family if you don't have one. Do you remember being worried that you were going to turn out like your older brothers, that you'd be on the run or in prison? Absolutely. Did you feel like you had a choice? 
I did not feel like I had a choice back then. He had his first kid at age 15, and another one two years later. While still attending high school, he struggled to get a job that would provide for his growing family. He turned to dealing drugs, which in tandem with his gang activity got him in trouble with the law a few times, though he never went to jail for longer than a few months, until he got caught selling in a sting operation. I was 26 when I caught the charge. So I was sentenced to like three and a half years, but I did about three. Okay. How did you get out earlier? What what, what did you do in prison to... Oh, you know, I kind of changed my mindset in prison, which a lot of people do, I guess. When I first started selling drugs in the first place, it was to take care of my family. Somewhere that that got lost. And I just started doing it just for for me, for, for whatever, like to now live a certain type of lifestyle. So when I was incarcerated, my mindset was to come home, you know, obtain a job, further my my education, go to culinary school. And, you know, of course you make plans in jail and then you come home and reality set in. So mm-hmm. it wasn't easy for me to come home and just get a job. So I ended up dabbling back into the streets to the point where it almost got me incarcerated again. And, and, and when I realized how easy it was to go back to jail, I, I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that no more. He did go to culinary school and worked in restaurants for a bit. Then he switched to trucking. As he worked to stay out of trouble, the team at Save Our Streets took notice. It's a violence prevention program based in parts of Brooklyn and the Bronx, fashioned after an approach pioneered in Chicago called Cure Violence. They train locals as violence interrupters who mediate conflicts and try to change neighborhood norms around violence. Save Our Streets started up in Crown Heights in 2010, and they'd been trying to recruit Daquan Stanley for a while. I mean, I thought it was a beautiful thing. The guy that was the supervisor there, LaVon Walker, he knew me from back in the days, but he seen me again, and he basically was like, you know, we need you to get on a team. I kept saying, nah, I'm not ready for that right now. I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. The day that he finally felt ready... It was late May 2014, about four years after he'd been released from prison. The neighborhood was having its annual reunion. Everybody come back and they celebrate the fact that they're alive and, you know, that they can still come back to the hood. So it's in the park. It's outside. I was only supposed to be there for a few seconds because really I, I was waiting for my third baby mother, who was at the time pregnant, with my daughter. So I didn't plan on staying, but I just wanted to see what the atmosphere looked like. I get there, of course, I see a bunch of people that I know. So I'm laughing, I'm joking, I'm hugging, I'm taking pictures. I'm in the mix. As soon as I came to the park, Derek Latif Scott, who was then the violence interrupter supervisor, he's another brother that was, you know, trying to get me in to the Save Our Street thing. It was like, you know what? I am going to fill out the application. I am, because I'm ready to come back and start doing work for the community. So Derek is like, I'm happy to hear that. And I said, okay, well, matter of fact, let me get my shirt right now. So he passed me, i never forget it, he passed me a white SOS shirt. And he was like, yo, I want to see you at the office on, on Tuesday filling out that application. I said, you already know, meaning you got it. Next thing you know, right when I'm about to walk away, shots ring out. So when the first shot rang out, I knew that it hit me, specifically me, the very first shot. Mm. Then I just heard several more. And um, at this point, um, I don't know if somebody is targeting me or if this is or like what's going on. I feel the, numb- the numbness in my leg. I hear an older lady say, I'm shot. I try to soothe her, tell her just to relax, just stay calm, don't move around because they still shooting. After I was shot, of course, SOS came to the hospital and they checked my temperature, meaning they wanted to see if I was still into the street life and how I was going to, to go about retaliation, if there would be any retaliation or if I was going to leave it alone. But in my situation, nobody was targeting me. They was targeting somebody else. There's no need for retaliation. I, I, I'm shot. We're just going to leave it. We're going to leave it alone. We, we're not going to, you know, keep making it go on and on and on. And they said, we definitely need you on the team. We love the way you moving nowadays. And the rest is history. So what exactly do you do? What is your job? Yeah, I came in as a violence interrupter from that to the now 
outreach worker supervisor. So an outreach worker may come in a little bit early to take care of their caseloads and, and, and deal with their participants. A violence interrupter, he comes in a little bit later and he just, his job is to just be on the block. So that means that you really have to be from the community to be able to be in spaces where other people wouldn't be able to get in. So that means the trap houses, that means the locations that maybe cops don't know about or, you know, just places where people are hanging out, they're gossiping, they're talking, or maybe there's a possibility that an altercation or some, a situation can transpire in those locations. So their job is to listen, you know, be attentive, make their presence felt, and also have the credibility to be able to stop it once it does happen. Can you tell me about a case that you worked on where you feel like it really made a difference, like you helped to prevent violence? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll speak of one of the latest, one of the latest situations. Two two individuals, both recently released from incarceration for doing like a lot of time. So they're both pretty quiet, but both got a, a real short fuse. A situation happened where one of the guys' girlfriend was coming in the building. The other guy was in the building. So I I think he said something simple like, "Hey, how you doing?" And the other guy mistook it like as if he was trying to like, you know, holler at his girlfriend. So they started, you know, they started arguing. I wasn't around. My team wasn't around. Someone else from the neighborhood contacted another guy from the office. And we went, you know, we split up to get to the guys. I went to the building. My other friend found out that the other one went towards where his house is at to go get a pistol. Before he can get back to the guy, I was already there. So the guy that I got with had a pistol. The other guy had the pistol. And me and my team was able to defuse that before it turned into something. And that definitely would have turned into something because both of them has been convicted of shooting someone. And they both do not talk at all. Wow. You had to like respond quickly. I mean, it's like a 911 call. <laughs> like you got to move. Absolutely like a 911 call. Yeah, we never off the clock. I mean, this is a 24-hour thing. What exactly does an outreach worker do? Their job is to maintain a caseload of 10 to 15 high-risk individuals. High-risk individuals being those who are most likely to be impacted by or to be the uh, the perpetrator or victim of a shooting. So we get these kids and we basically meet them where they are and help them with whatever it is that they need. So if it's schooling, then we'll help them get in school. If it's a job they're looking for, we help them find a job. If it's just a place to come and be safe, then we also give them that. We are like mentors because now they get to see somebody that has experienced it in a different way. So they don't have to go through everything that we went through. So they listen to you. Absolutely. That's what the program is really all about. Who else can come into a community and and talk to people without having the experience of what they are experiencing? At least five of my participants have been staff at SOS after. So I groomed them to now make the change and now show other young individuals that they can do the same thing that this person did. I caught them at an earlier age. Remember, when I got converted over to SOS, I was already 30. These guys, I caught them when they were about 16, 17, 18. They wouldn't have made that change. Who's to say that they could have lasted as long as I did? Who's to say that when they got caught for a charge, it would have been as light as my sentence was? So they didn't have to do some of the stuff that I did to survive out there in the streets. That must feel really good. That is the highlight of my job. Because it's, it's something, it's a good thing to say, okay, I mediated a conflict and now this person is, you know, is alive. But it's a way better feeling to know that this person is not only alive, this person is alive and they are flourishing and they are moving forward and they are in a position to tell someone else. So that I'm not only impacting that one person, whoever he come in contact with, I'm also impacting them as well. Is there less violence in Crown Heights because of Save Our Streets? Absolutely. I mean, I can't speak for the whole Crown Heights, but I know for a fact in our catchment area with the uh, the gun violence, the shootings and killings has been down ever since it's been in existence. A study by the John Jay College of Criminal Justice found the number of people hit by gunfire dropped by half in neighborhoods of New York where violence interruption programs like Save Our Streets operate. 
Researchers also surveyed young men to gauge social norms in those neighborhoods and found declining support for violence as a way to resolve disputes. Rigorous independent research of cure violence programs all across the country have shown similar success. So the question's not, does it work, says Daquan Stanley. It's just we need more help. You know what I'm saying? that We need more assistance. We need more workers, more therapists, more people to communicate with these high-risk individuals. Because yeah. it's so one-on-one. I mean, the only way it works is you got to know about all the conflicts and all the high-risk individuals, and you got to spend time with them. Absolutely. If I can save one person, then I know I'm doing my job, and I know it works. I'm watching the system work, so I know it does. And like I said, once we get more people and if, it, if if we can extend and if we can go further and further and, and grow, if we can be as big as the NYPD, I'm pretty sure we could get the gun violence all the way down. But but you don't you, you don't actually work with NYPD. They're not like a partner or anything with you guys. No, actually, we never want to be mixed up with the police. Um, it's nothing like we don't have anything against NYPD, but it'll just take away from our credibility for our people to look and, and think that we are either giving information or we're working with them to get them arrested. Now they'll no longer trust us. Who would be there for them to talk to? That's that's the only thing that would keep them comfortable enough to be able to tell us, yo, listen, I got a gun on me or this is what's happening. You, you, think, you think a young teen that's on a verge of shooting somebody or is going to feel comfortable in front of the cops saying, yeah, I got a gun on me. He's not, they're not going to talk him down or de-escalate anything to get him back in the house safely. They're going to lock him up. Yeah. It's like they fund, they not to take nothing away from, you know, NYPD, but they spend billions of dollars, like billions of dollars to fund the police just to incarcerate people, put them in jail and then bring them back. When the fact is that that doesn't that doesn't fix no one. That just put them away for a minute and then bring them back to the same environment that caused them to act the way they act from the beginning. Would a violence interrupter have worked for you as a as a fourteen year old, a sixteen year old? Um, if it was the right one, hmm. you know, it was people that I respected enough at fourteen, like older guys that used to hustle, sell drugs, and, and and I knew that they was about that life. Like, I seen them shoot people, and yeah, if they told me, like, listen, shorty, you don't have to do that or or, or whatever, yeah, I would respect that because coming from you, I seen when you did shoot somebody, so that means you must have had a legitimate reason to do it. And if you're telling me that the reason that I'm doing it is not legitimate, then maybe I wouldn't do it. Daquan Stanley is an outreach worker supervisor at Save Our Streets Crown Heights in Brooklyn. So programs like that address a big part of the gun violence problem in America. Remember, nearly half of all gun deaths are homicides. But the other half, the majority of gun deaths, in fact, are suicides. And that is an entirely different problem in need of a different solution. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The rate of suicide in America has risen dramatically in the last two decades. But here's the thing. Most people who attempt suicide survive, often to receive treatment and experience recovery. So what do most suicide deaths in this country have in common? A gun. But the link between guns and suicide death is not something many Americans realize. Erin Dunkerley didn't until her dad died by suicide and she got involved in prevention advocacy. It was in August 2006. It was a week before my 30th birthday. This came after years of him struggling with depression. He had struggled for a long time with alcohol. And so that addiction kind of revved up and contributed to him losing his job of about 30 years. There were a couple occasions where he attempted suicide by means other than a firearm. And on both those occasions, he either brought himself to the emergency room or or was somehow delivered there and placed on a three-day hold in a mental facility for monitoring. I knew, I had learned that a couple months prior to his death, he had been working one of his call center jobs. 
and was using a public restroom when he was approached by a man who robbed him at gunpoint. And it was a really embarrassing scenario because the offender made him strip down. And then my dad was left in this men's room, stripped down, and he tried to ask people for help, but they initially thought he was crazy. Um, so he had that trauma in addition to just his struggles to find regular work and being out of his housing situation. He was staying with very good friends. He was their house guest. And my understanding is that they had a gun in their house that they used, that they had for a sense of self-protection. And he knew that they had this gun. And there was a Sunday where they were out of their house and he took the gun and he drove to a dock park got in his car and, and used the gun. If he hadn't had access to that gun, do you think... Do you think he would still be alive today? I, I, uh, that's obviously really hard to say because he was clearly struggling. I think, though, he would have good days and there's always the potential that, that he would find a means of coping with, with the issues he was facing. It all comes down to the lethality of firearms. So compared to other means of suicide, People who attempt suicide by firearm are far more likely to die. I believe the death rate is over 90%. And so, whereas other means of suicide, people can survive, people can be rescued, people can then receive treatment, that opportunity is extinguished with a firearm. Where did you find support for yourself? When someone you love dies and the whole community comes together, we had a really good church community a lot of friends and, and family. So that initial week is always, I think, when you're grieving and, and people come to support and have a memorial is so, so important. I think for me, sorry, I know that God transcends time. And so in the years after he died, especially like on his anniversary, I would, I would pray for my dad and pray that back in 2006 in August, um, even though it had already happened, I would just ask God to watch over him and give him comfort. And I know that, I know I'll see him again. And then several years went by until I was Googling the issue, frankly, and came upon the statistics and realized how widespread the issue of firearm suicide is. So then I began volunteering for a local charity walk to raise awareness for suicide prevention. And I did that for a couple years. And I found that the more outspoken, the more um, vulnerable I let myself be, the more I let myself talk about my experience with my dad, the more other people would come up to me and disclose that they had a suicide in their family or among their friends. And, and that was really compelling to learn just how, how much suicide affects so many of us. What, what have you come to consider the most effective way to prevent firearm suicides? I think that a lot of the time the conversation goes directly to public policy and laws. And I think that's definitely a vital aspect of um, where, where we can develop tools to address the issue. I know for myself, in my personal life with my dad, knowing what laws were out there would have been less helpful than more immediate steps that family and friends can take when they notice that someone is in crisis. So I think a lot of people are kind of encouraged to acquire guns or ha or maintain guns in their home with this sense of, oh, this is going to make me safer. But I feel like as consumers, people aren't adequately informed of the reality that having a gun in the home increases the risk of suicide. That the idea that you're going to have this gun and protect yourself from some unknown intruder is less of a risk than yourself or someone in your household or 
perhaps some teenager down the street, like using the gun to harm themselves. And so I think the first a first step people can make is to to not be consumers of firearms. And I know that that can be a, a testy issue politically, but like I think people really need to scrutinize like do you really need a firearm in the house? And then if you do, then I think there are steps you can take to secure it. I think there a lot of people when they have a gun are kind of taught to have your gun at the ready. And so this idea of having the gun for self-protection and then locking it away is, is, seems counterproductive. And so I think people also have to grapple with that. Like, okay, so you're going to have a gun, but do you really need it to be ready to fire at any moment's notice? Because that, again, increases the risk. Mm. So, so not having it in a bedroom drawer like the gun that your father found at his friend's house, but instead have it locked up in a safe where kids can't get it or... A friend can't get to it or even a spouse or someone who might be at risk in the household. Um, what, what about, though, the person that has the, has the, the code <laughs> to, to the gun who, who might also be at risk for suicide? What, what do you think could be done there? That's, that's really tricky. And I think that uh, there needs to be more conversation about... Um, how people are doing mentally and people being able to feel free to express when, when they're, when they're having those, those thoughts. Hmm. And so that they can either entrust someone say, Hey, I'm not in a good place right now. I need you to hold on to this for me or people in their lives being able to, and this is where perhaps the laws can, can come into play that will help people like gun violence restraining orders, like what we have here in California or extreme risk protection orders. What does that look like? Just d- describe how that might work then in a, in a situation. So if there's a gun owner, they're struggling in some way. Maybe they've, like my dad, hit hard times or are just having issues coping. If they've, say, expressed to, to someone they trust in their lives that they're struggling, that person in certain scenarios can go to their local state courthouse and request a gun violence restraining order that will require the the person, the gun owner, to surrender their firearms for a brief period of time so that they can attend to their to their needs. But that's a way to intervene and take the guns or guns away from the person, the gun owner who is at potential risk mm-hmm. for harming themselves. Do you think that mental health supports, intervention for mental illness, can get us the bulk of the way there? I mean, how much, how much could that contribute to reducing firearm suicides as opposed to this tricky gray area where we're talking about asking people to make their guns less accessible to themselves or even taking them away temporarily from some people? Right. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to, to know with any real precision um, because think, as, I, as I indicated earlier, even if my dad had not died when he did, he, he would have had years of ongoing struggles with depression and that would have required a lot of, you know, active attention on his part and help from, from likely a good therapist. Um, so yes, I think destigmatizing, seeking help, destigmatizing, being vulnerable and talking about when you're not doing too well is, is critical in each person's lives in order to help sustain their life. But that's a hard thing to, you know, in terms of public policy, legislate. Erin, how can we as community members, do you think, friends, family members, even, you know, members of the same congregation or neighbors, <laughs> what kind of support in that, in that regard do you think might have made a difference for your father? So I have learned that it's perfectly okay to, when someone in your life, when you, when you sense that something's off, it's perfectly okay to ask them, are you doing okay? Are you thinking of harming yourself? That the idea of raising the question of, are you considering suicide, does not somehow plant the idea in someone's head. But it is truly a way to help reveal how they are doing. And then encouraging people, no matter what your walk of life is, to to have that vulnerability to have candid discussions with each other, 
And then if it's your friend or a family member, once you learn like, yeah, I actually have been thinking things haven't been going so great, but I always have this backup plan I, you know, in my dresser drawer. Once you get that information to really work to pivot that person to some sort of a professional. Another thing I've learned is that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline isn't just for people who themselves are struggling with suicide. That if someone in your life is struggling with thoughts of suicide, you can call the suicide hotline and get help, get suggestions for how to pivot that person to some sort of a, a care professional who can help attend to their to the pain that they're experiencing. The number for the National Suicide Crisis Lifeline is 988. Just those three digits, 988. And thanks to Erin Dunkerley for sharing her story. She's an attorney in California and an advocate for suicide prevention and gun safety. So we know that the vast majority of gun deaths in America are suicides or homicides. But when we debate gun laws and talk about the trauma of gun violence in this country, it's almost always in the context of mass shootings, where somebody fires indiscriminately in a school or grocery store or nightclub, killing four or more people. In 2022, such shooting rampages killed 74 people. So they're a statistically rare, yet enormously significant part of America's gun deaths. And they just keep happening. Are mass shootings simply inevitable in the United States? There's no doubt that having the vast quantity of firearms in our country and that they're very easy to get in many places is intrinsic to this problem. But if we ask the question, what more can we do about it? There are some constructive and hopeful things about it. Hopeful? I like the sound of that. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. I'm Mark Fullman. I'm the national affairs editor for Mother Jones and author of the book Trigger Points Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. It is a fractional part of the overall gun violence problem, but it has a really a, an outsized impact in terms of the trauma it creates in communities and more broadly in the country. We have the sense that uh, there could be a mass shooting anywhere, anytime in this country. And that is true, but it's also not true. Uh, statistically speaking, the probability of becoming a victim of an attack like this is very small. And yet I think everyone would agree that this happens far too frequently in our country. And it is scary to think about because what if it does happen in your children's school or in your place of work? Mark Fullman's in-depth reporting on this issue began in 2012 after the mass shooting at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Prior to that, I had covered gun violence to some degree over the years, but that case really hit home for me, I, I think in part because it, it was very much unprecedented at the time. That's a little bit hard to sort of remember at this point uh, because of just the incredible range and, and amount of attacks we've seen since then. But for someone to walk into a movie theater and uh, murder 12 people and wound dozens of others was, was really shocking at the time. And there had been some other recent cases. The year before, there was the mass shooting in Arizona that killed several people, wounded then Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. And so one fundamental question for me was, was this happening more often? And I began working with my colleagues at Mother Jones on a number of questions that were on our minds about the problem. You know, who does this? Why do they do it? What kinds of weapons are they using? And I had gone looking for some data and found virtually nothing was available publicly at the time. So that's what gave me the idea to create what became the first of its kind online database of public mass shootings. And with that work, began doing a bunch more reporting and soon started to think there had to be other ways to think about this problem that went beyond the extremely familiar and repetitive debate over gun politics and gun regulations. As he built the database, he started to notice patterns. And that pointed to a, a discovery of, of 
what I came to see was a very big myth that we have about this problem that we have often seen repeated in media coverage, that these attacks just come out of nowhere, that mass shooters are all crazy and they just snap, quote unquote. That was that was kind of, a, I would say, a significant aha moment for me that in many of these cases, there were lots of warning signs ahead of time that suggested they could be prevented. He started to dig into something called behavioral threat assessment, which ultimately became the subject of his latest book, Trigger Points. Behavioral threat assessment dates back decades to a moment in America when the Secret Service got really focused on preventing assassinations. There'd been the murder of JFK and the shooting of President Reagan and the assassination of singer John Lennon. Forensic psychologists and government agents were looking for a way to predict or at least anticipate an assassination. Then a spate of shootings by disgruntled postal employees in the late 80s added workplace shooters to their behavioral threat assessment work. Then Columbine put school shooters on their radar in a serious way. They started to discover some of the things that have continued to be myths to this day that we were talking about earlier, that not all of these people were totally crazy, delusional, out of their minds, um, that in fact, quite a few of them were were very rational in their thinking and planning ahead of what they tried to do, that they were driven by uh, grievance or despair and and also by a desire to to be somebody, to be known. Are you talking about a profiler then? No. And so that's a great question. There's this common misperception that there is a known profile of a mass shooter, a type of person. And that's just not true. When you look at the historical case data, there are all kinds of people who commit mass shootings in terms of age, uh, socioeconomic background, ethnic background. Uh, there is there is a commonality in gender. The vast majority of mass shooters are male, but that in and of itself tells you nothing. Roughly half the population of the country is male, but the number of mass shooters is tiny, right? What we're talking about is a profile of behavior, I think is a good way to say it. Threat assessment doesn't profile types of people. It profiles a behavioral process. That's what the work is all about. Take, for example, the 2007 mass shooting at Virginia Tech, when a student murdered 32 people on campus. This is a case where the importance of noticing warning signs comes into sharp focus for Fulman. I got to know a survivor of that attack, a young woman by the name of Christina Anderson. Just a remarkable story. She was gravely wounded in, in one of the classrooms, um, not only survived, but went on to graduate and became very much focused as a young adult on uh, the work of response and recovery after shootings and also prevention work and became involved with the field of threat assessment. While writing his book, Fulman and Christina Anderson got access to investigation reports that had only recently been unsealed. Yeah, what was most interesting about it was not that people in the community were not aware of disturbing behaviors. It's that they weren't sharing the information. There was a catastrophic lack of information sharing going on, what they call us in retrospect, a siloing problem. So there were teachers and administrators who were very worried about the shooter. He'd been writing very graphically violent fiction stories in an English class. But not just that. I mean, that in and of itself would tell you nothing. Lots of people write violent fiction, but he was sitting in class, never talking. He'd have a, a hood pulled down over his head. It came to the attention of the campus police that he had been uh, surreptitiously taking photos of female students under the desk. He was stalking some female students in their dorms. So there were all kinds of signals like this going on in the community. There were people who were concerned about him, and yet they weren't talking to each other enough about all these warning signs. That to me was a really instructive uh, deep dive into a case where had a trained team been paying attention, it's very unlikely that he would have gotten all the way to where he did. So what is the behavior that that this method looks for in particular? It's fairly complex. Some examples would be a person who is engaging in what I call threatening communications. This may be the sort of most obvious example of a warning sign. People starting to signal through what they say or write or post on social media, which has become much more common in recent years, that suggests they're planning violence. And that's often wrapped up in another behavioral area that I call entrenched grievances. 
people who commit this type of crime are people who tend to have very deep grievances that they can't let go of, something that they're angry about. They've arrived at this idea that the only solution to the problem is to commit violence. And then often there's, there is despair involved. Many mass shooters are suicidal. And this was one of the early findings too from the database work that a majority of mass shootings ended in suicide. So there are a number of other things too that uh, threat assessment professionals will look at in terms of circumstances that may be leading up to violence. Certainly, as you're listing all of those things off, I'm thinking back to the, um, you know, the the reporting and the information that has come out about the perpetrator in many, many of the mass shootings that we've experienced in America in the last decade. And almost all of the things that you mentioned there, we can tend to tick off. Oh, well, it turns out he had this going on and he'd had this life change and he had these entrenched grievances that he talked about. So in hindsight, it seems like that's, um, you know, it's easy to kind of connect to the dots and say, yeah, you know, we should have known. But doesn't that underscore the, 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 a shortcoming in this approach that, that after the fact we can learn that all these things were in place and yet somehow we weren't able to see them in time to stop the, the massacre What's the disconnect there? Well, there's no doubt that that these things are easier to see in hindsight. Leaders in threat assessment are the first to say that. But it's not to say that they can't be observed. So part of this is about, I think, better understanding of the nature of this problem. I came to realize early on in the process of developing the book that demystifying what these mass shootings are is really important. We tend to regard them in our public and political discourse as these sensational events that are inexplicable, that are uh, only can be attributed to insanity or pure evil, these kind of you know philosophical or moral terms that we use. But the reality is, is that they can be explained as human behavior. And so if we understand better the nature and contours of that behavior, then it becomes more possible to see the warning signs. That's really the hope in this prevention work. So when you look at the case information that comes out after every major mass shooting, and you see all those warning signs that were missed, I think ultimately that that is actually hopeful information because it tells us these aren't insane evil monsters doing this. These are people with very deep problems, but those are problems that can be addressed if we can recognize them in most cases, maybe not all, but in many of them. Yeah. You profile at least one example in your book, Trigger Points, of a a group of threat assessment experts functioning in a school district in Oregon. Would you walk us through how that, who is on that team in that particular school system and what exactly, how do they function? Sure. So I spent a lot of time with a number of threat assessment teams in different settings for the book. The one where I go deepest is is probably this team in, in Salem, Oregon, in the Salem-Kaiser Public School District, K-12 through school district. They were one of the first districts in the country to pioneer this model after Columbine in 1999. Essentially, you have multidisciplinary expertise on the team. So you have mental health experts in the form of school psychologists and counselors. You have administrators from the school system. You have law enforcement, school resource officers on the team. Um, And then there's representation from local and even state agencies that are involved in uh, child services in the juvenile justice system. A team of roughly a dozen or so people who meet on a weekly basis to handle the most serious cases. And in the book, I tell the story of some of these cases in depth. One is a, a high school junior who I call Brandon in the book, who at the time was on this pathway, as I was describing earlier, uh, spiraling into crisis. There were a lot of behaviors that were were troubling to the team. Uh, in 2019, had made some threatening comments overheard by another student talking about coming to school on a Friday and shooting up the school with his dad's gun. And this other student became worried and told a faculty member that was then reported to the team. The team began to take a look quickly into the case. The first thing they did was to determine, does Brandon have access to a gun? That's important, obviously, in the immediate to know if there's any imminent danger. So uh, a school resource officer on the team went out to the home to interview Brandon and his mother was able to determine that he did not have access to his his father's gun safe, even though he was boasting that at at school. 
But then the question became, well, what else was going on here? Clearly, he had caused enough discomfort that it had to be taken seriously. The team found pretty quickly that there were some other troubling warning behaviors going on with Brandon, that he was failing out of class, that he had gone through a humiliating experience recently that caused him to quit a, a, a drama club he was participating in. And one of the counselors on the team in particular that I observed in, in the casework was really concerned about his, his low self-esteem. So the team's quickly gathering all this information and then developing a strategy to intervene, to try to connect Brandon more with authority figures who he likes or respects. There were a couple of teachers that could fulfill that role. And the team's essentially keeping a close watch on him week to week as they start to get him some of the resources they feel he needs. Did they punish him? Did they suspend him? Did they, is that at all part of the intervention? It, it can be, but it wasn't in this case, and it often isn't. The goal is to not be punitive. Threat assessment programs and, and professionals have found over the years that intervening constructively is by far the better outcome. It's not always possible. If a kid brings a gun to a school, punitive steps have to be taken. But short of that, or short of um, you know imminent violent behavior, the the interest in doing constructive intervention is strong. And that's what the team at Salem Kaiser was doing in a case like Brandon's. They were getting him more educational support, more counseling support, connecting him more with people. Disconnection is a huge theme in a lot of these cases, especially in a school setting when a kid is just sort of falling through the cracks. This this sounds like a pretty lengthy intervention. Like it maybe went on for a whole school year, maybe longer in the case of this young man. It did. It was It was an active case for at least a full school year. You know, one really interesting question about this method is when is a case really over? Or when is a case ever over? Um, In Brandon's case, he was doing better by his senior year with this, all of this kind of wraparound constructive help he was getting from the team. But that doesn't mean that the team forgot about him. They would revisit periodically his case to make sure everything was going okay. And they're doing this with multiple cases at a time, week in and week out. So it can be resource intensive and it does take place over a longer period of time, what the field calls threat management work, really the long-term management of a case. Is there any way to say that it paid off? Any, has anyone been able to say this many school shootings or mass shootings have been prevented by threat assessment, threat intervention teams? It's a really tricky question to answer. Success in a threat assessment case is really the absence of evidence. It's the absence of a violent outcome. Can you really say that someone was going to commit violence if they never did, that you then prevented it? That has its limitations. But on the other hand, I looked at many cases where you could see in the evolution of the case that these are people with really serious problems getting into some pretty scary scenarios with violent thinking and planning and and in some cases preparation for attacks where a team was then able to intervene and eventually move that person away from that process over the long term. I came to see that this method has prevented many instances of violence, maybe dozens, if not hundreds of attacks in in various places throughout the country over the years. What could I advocate for as an individual in my community if I wanted to see threat assessment, behavioral threat assessment happening in the way that you've described? So I think there, there are two ways that people can engage this more everyday citizens. One is to learn more about it. And then beyond that, there's also, I think, a lot of synergy with other violence prevention work or programs and communities that in some ways use a lot of the same principles that are seeking to identify at-risk individuals or groups and get them resources that they need, as opposed to leaving them in a situation where their only option is to pick up a gun and go shoot people. A part of this process is also more awareness and engagement from everyone that ultimately targeted mass violence, the problem of mass shootings in our country, school shootings, shootings in shopping malls, at concerts, any number of venues. This is fundamentally a community problem that everyone needs to be paying attention to, watching for warning signs or or responding to them, I should say. When people feel unease about the way someone's behaving, to speak up and seek help 
and then trying to create more of this in communities where people know to turn for help. Uh, so it's really kind of changing the whole paradigm of thinking about community safety that, you know, the idea that everyone's in this together and looking out for each other, that's easier said than done, of course, to create that. But I think that that is the, the sort of ideal version of how this model works. Mark Fullman is National Affairs Editor at Mother Jones, author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Mark, thank you for taking time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you. So here is a thing to note as we wrap up. In 2022, Congress passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. It was the first piece of major gun safety legislation to pass in nearly 30 years. And it really was bipartisan. The vote margin was not small. Republican and Democratic leaders in both the House and Senate backed it after extensive negotiations. Here's some of what it does. It expands the background check for 18 to 21-year-olds who buy guns. It provides funding for state red flag laws and crisis intervention programs like we've talked about today. And closes what's known as the boyfriend loophole so that it's harder for convicted domestic abusers and stalkers to get a gun. All of that to say that despite the paralyzing polarization that seems to plague the gun control debate in this country, there is some common ground. And I think we can all agree that we deserve to live in a society with fewer gun deaths. So can we create a world where kids in poor communities have somewhere to turn besides gangs and guns? Where suicide attempts are less frequent and less final? Where troubled people get the support they need long before they commit senseless, indiscriminate violence? Our guests today think that we can. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops and Cole Cummings, with help from Samuel Benson and me. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I'm so glad you're joining us for season three of Top of Mind, focused on finding fairness. In addition to these full episodes tackling tough topics, we're excited to be sharing lots of stick with it stories on our podcast feed this season. We've had a great response to our invitation to you, the listener, to share with us a time when you felt your own perspective challenged and you had the urge to get defensive, but you chose to stick with that discomfort instead. And you're glad you did. What's your stick with it story? Email it to topofmind at byu.edu. And be sure to leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. Hold up. 